Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest today is Grace Barnes, whose new book is titled National Identity and the British Musical, From Blood Brothers to Cinderella. This is a fascinating book in which Grace Barnes explores how British national identity has and has not been dramatized in British musical theater, and she does this by examining the content and context of musicals such as Blood Brothers, Mamma Mia, Billy Elliot, and the current smash hit Six, and, of course, by considering the tremendous impact that the mega-musicals such as Les Miserables and Phantom of the Opera, both of which are still running in London, as well as the tremendous power and domination that Andrew Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh have had on the British musical theater industry. She also explores why UK critics so seldom give any serious consideration to musical theater, and, in contrast to the way American musicals are often discussed, why British musicals are so often overlooked in national debates regarding culture and identity. This is the first part of our recent conversation in which we discuss all of that and more. Grace Barnes is an independent scholar, director, and playwright who has worked as an associate and resident director on productions of My Fair Lady, Fiddler on the Roof, Into the Woods, Sunset Boulevard, The Witches of Eastwick, Martin Gare, West Side Story, and Guys and Dolls in the United Kingdom, Germany, and Australia. She has a PhD from the University of Technology in Sydney, and her previous book is titled Her Turn on Stage, The Role of Women in Musical Theater. This episode is made possible in part through the generous support of our patron club members, including one of our newest members, Lois Hunter. If you would like to help support the creation of this podcast, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. Here we go. 
Welcome, Grace Barnes. It is such a pleasure to have you here today on Broadway Nation to talk about your new book called National Identity and the British Musical, From Blood Brothers to Cinderella. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. First of all, my first question is just how did this book come about? What inspired you to tackle this particular subject? You clearly are very involved in musical theater and thinking about it all the time, the way myself and many of the listeners to this podcast are. How did this all come together? I suppose because my career, uh, I've been a resident director and associate director on many musicals in the UK and in Australia. I noticed that there were real differences between the function of the British musical and the function of the American musical. And also what the two forms do on different sides of the Atlantic are very different and they're very different how an audience perceives them. And I thought it was interesting that the British musical has gone through a lot of different formations. I mean, you had the 60s where you had Oliver and John Littlewood and those shows, you know, Lovely War. Then there was the mega musical. And I feel that what happened with Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber was that the British musical became commodified in a way that the American musical never did. And the other thing that interested me, I guess, having worked in it for so long, was the way that it's perceived by the critics. So that in the UK, musical theatre is not really regarded as an art form. That's drama. Theatre equals drama. It's not viewed by the critics as a legitimate strand of cultural production. And I also was interested by that because you go to America where Americans are incredibly proud of their musical theatre legacy. And it is an art form, whereas in the UK, there's a sort of sneering disdain from critics that it's something that's not really theatre because it's equated with mass entertainment, because it's populist. It's not popular, it's populist. Whereas American critics contextualise musical theatre, they will criticise it or critique it in a way that they will critique drama, whereas that doesn't happen in the UK. That's so interesting. And I want to follow up on all of that. Before we get there, though, you talked about being an associate director, which is a position that is more standard in British theatre than it is American theatre, sort of come late to America. So talk about what that job is. In that role, what did you do? I think it evolved out of the mega musical and shows that were suddenly running for years. It's called an associate or a resident director. It means you're there throughout auditions, you're there for the whole rehearsal process, and you learn the show. And then my job would be the director leaves, and my job would be I take the show out on the road, and I would be responsible for the creative standard. Ensuring that the show that somebody saw in Blackpool four years down the track was the same show that opened at the West Yorkshire Playhouse four years previously. The artistic standards hadn't dropped. So I would rehearse the understudies, put the understudies on. You would have cast replacements after a certain period of time. In the UK, well, they didn't used to when I was doing it. There weren't cast holidays, but there would be sickness. So you'd have to have the swings prepared. It was a general day-to-day running of the show and and moving it. In, In the UK, you'd very often be on tour and a tour moves every two weeks. So you're not going into a city like an American sitting there for eight to 12 weeks. It's every two weeks you move. That's exhausting. Absolutely. In the traditional American system, the stage manager did that job, sort of maintained the show. Yeah. I think this is actually a healthy thing. If you're going to run a show for that long, this is probably what you need to do. Whether we should be running shows for that long is another question I've often had. Completely. I'm not sure that theater is supposed to exist in a static form like that for decades and decades and 35 years. Well, in Australia, it's different because I work in Australia as well, because Australia is such a large country like the States that you do go to somewhere and you will sit there for eight weeks. But that's when you will have, when you're on tour, people will be off because they will need to go into state to deal with family issues. 
So you tend to be touring six wings rather than four. So there's all those things that right. come with it. It's the only way a lot of those cities will see the show. Perth, for example, is a five-hour flight from Sydney. You can't go to Sydney for the weekend to see a show very easily. You can if you have a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. You've been inside these shows to a great extent, especially the big British mega musicals. Yeah, I was there for Martin Guerre, which is an interesting one. I did the second reincarnation of Martin Guerre was when it went to one of the rep companies. It went to West Yorkshire Playhouse, which is now called Leeds Playhouse, which is in the north of England. And it was completely redone, reworked. There was a new director. There was a whole new creative team brought in. And then we toured, I think, for a year. Yeah, it would have been a year. But I also was on Witches of Easter, the premiere of Witches of Easter. Which I did see in London. I have to say that flying sequence was one of the most thrilling things I've ever seen in a theater. It was great. Truly exciting. At the Fifth Avenue, we were in what was supposed to be the pre-Broadway engagement of Martin Gare, actually, that never ended up making it to Broadway. So both those shows I'm very familiar with, although most Americans would not know either one of them very well. I'm surprised that Witches of Eastwick never made it to Broadway. It had all the hallmarks of a classic musical comedy. And it's produced regionally occasionally, but without that Broadway brand, it's hard to make it happen for most regional theaters. In regional theaters, yeah, the flying sequence puts it out. You couldn't do that. You'd have to figure out something else to do. I'm not sure what that would be. Yeah. In the introduction to your book, you describe Britain's long and acclaimed theatrical heritage. And you were sort of alluding to this just a moment ago. You even say Britain is alive with theater and that the primary function of theater in any society is to critique it. And that British theatre has often done that in various decades at various times it has critiqued it, but that the British musical theatre, in spite of its worldwide profile, is mostly overlooked in regard to national debates concerning culture. That's not part of the discussion when that happens. Why is that? Why is it seen as this other? I think if it, historically, people in the UK a century ago, their experience of theatre would probably be two things. It would be the annual pantomime, which is a huge British tradition, and it was musical. Both of those were regarded as the lower end of the social class scale. I'll just preface this by saying I think that musical theatre in the UK is contextualised by class in a way that musical theatre in America is contextualised by race. Music hall and pantomime was regarded as mass entertainment. It was not Shakespeare. It wasn't what the middle classes were going to. And I think that musical theatre was slightly linked in people's minds to music hall. So it was something that was not, I mean, I talk a lot in the book about the literary gaze. It was not for a sophisticated audience. And I think that has persisted. I think that's why it's not included in cultural debate. I also think that the mega musical turned musical theatre in the UK into mass entertainment, particularly in the eyes of the critics. It's not regarded as having anything worth critiquing. Does that make sense? It does. And it sort of seems like it's a double-edged sword in that it wasn't highly regarded to begin with by at least the British critical theatre establishment. And then when it became so incredibly successful in the 1980s and the 90s, it became even more othered, I guess I'll say. Now it's just something to make money. Yes. And I think that's exactly the point is that the irony is that it's something that was so successful. And I mean, in the 90s, I think Cameron Mackintosh won the Queen's Award for export. It was something that was being exported all over the world, but it was 
regarded by critics and theatre establishment. And when I say the theatrical establishment, I mean the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National, the rep companies saw it as something that was not drama and theatre equals drama. And because the mega musical, particularly Cameron and Andrew, their shows were not British in a sense that they weren't reflecting society. Their shows are fantasies. The only real claim they have on being British is the creative team. They're not telling a story about Britain in a way that the American musical tells stories about American society. British musical doesn't. And has rarely done that. Rarely done that. I mean, John Littlewood did with Oh, What a Lovely War. But that was coming from a very British socialist tradition of theatre, which goes right back to the 30s. That's what I was saying earlier about how theatre is contextualised by class. And so the play with music was part of a socialist theatrical tradition. Blood Brothers has evolved from that. And that's exactly what John Littlewood was doing with Oh, What a Lovely War. You could argue Billy Elliot evolved from that. From this socialist theatre tradition. Yeah, the play with music as opposed to the musical. And were those aligned to a certain extent with Music Hall, with British Music Hall as well? Certainly I feel like, oh, what a lovely war, had elements of that woven into it. Absolutely. Well, the other thing that was very popular and is a very, I say English tradition, because I do make very clear in the book that British musical theatre is actually English musical theatre, has very little to do with Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland. But there was a very English tradition called the end of pier show. Seaside resorts like Brighton or Bournemouth had piers. And at the end of the pier, there was a theatre. And that was where the Pierrette show came, which you see in Oh, What a Lovely War. Now, John Littlewood was deliberately using that to say, here's this sort of innocuous show that anybody can walk in and see a bit of fun. And we're going to play a game and it's called the war game. But that's why she was adamant that nobody was to wear khaki, that they were to be dressed in something that dissipated the threat, which was they're dressed as pieros, because that was the end of pier show. Good evening, all. Welcome to our little Piro show, The Merry Roosters. We've got a few songs for you, a few battles, and some jokes. How should we start? How about Johnny Jones? Johnny Jones? Yes! All right, then. Jones it is. Young Johnny Jones, he had a cute little boat. And all the girlies he would take for a float. He had girlies on the shore. Sweet little peaches by the score. But Master Johnny was a wise and you know His steady girl was Flo And every Sunday afternoon She jumped in his boat and they would swoon And Eddie'd row, row, row Way up the river he would row, row, row A huggy dipper then he'd kiss her now and then She would tell him when They'd fool around and fool around And then they'd kiss again and then he'd row there is a link between the end of Pierre show and pantomime. I think the other thing I talk about is the working man's club, which was, you see it in Billy Elliot when they open act two and they're in the working man's club and they're doing a sort of variety show. Now that was very popular. You could argue, I mean, I do argue that that fed into a British tradition of musical theatre that was around in the 60s and not so much the 70s, but certainly in the 60s, there were some very interesting British musicals going on in the 60s. I think Blood Brothers was a product of, but 
disappeared. That completely got suffocated once the mega musical came in. So interesting because, of course, American musical theater evolves. The sort of working class traditions were incorporated into the musical vaudeville and even variety, which was an earlier version of vaudeville and burlesque, all become embraced by the Broadway musical and sort of elevated to be on a par with everything else. And that dynamic does not happen in the same way in the UK. The opposite happens in the UK. Because of the links with music hall and the working class, it's seen as not real theatre. So interesting. Mm, Isn't it? Talk a little bit more about this difference between, you mentioned this earlier, American musical theatre has often dealt with the issue of national identity. One of the points of your book is that British theatre does not do that very often. It goes back to what I've been saying about the purpose of the musical in the UK is regarded now as purely to entertain. It's not to examine society in the way that drama is. Whereas the American musical, right back to Rodgers and Hammerstein, was holding a mirror up to society and saying, who are we as Americans? What is our society? And you can see cultural shifts in American society replicated on stage in musical theatre in a way that you don't in the UK musical, unless you're looking at Blood Brothers. I think I say in the book that Billy Elliot is very interesting, that it's only 10, 12 years after the miners' strike that Billy Elliot was allowed to exist. Not contemporary with it. Not contemporary with it. And I talk about in the book, there was a beautiful show by Howard Goodall called The Hired Man. And The Hired Man, it spans about 50 years. It's basically indentured land workers. They're not farmers because they were hired by the farmers. That's why they were called The Hired Men. They worked on the land. That musical premiered at the time of the miners' strike. And it was one of the very first times that the British musical had put working class voices on stage and people didn't know what to make of it. I mean, critics were saying, why is this not on the royal court? What is this doing in musical theatre? There's a whole section in Act 2 where they go into the mine. The protagonist becomes a miner. It's the big industrialization of Great Britain. And they're talking about unionizing in Act 2. While on the streets, the miner strike was raging. Every man here has a grievance. Every man needs some allegiance. Every man seeks to improve the miner's lot. Every man speaks with defiance. Every man longs for some guidance. Every man must join the union. Goodall told me that people were shouting things out during this song, the Union song. Audiences in Leicestershire, which had a big mining population, were shouting out. Every man sworn to the Union, every boy born to the Union, every child knows that is where their future lies. Every pit pledged to the Union, every vote cast for the Union, not a man toil in the mines that won't
don't go away. Grace and I will be back right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So it was the one time where the British musical was replicating what was going on in society, but it was purely by chance. It wasn't written as a response to the minor strike. It existed before that. But Billy Elliot, I think, would not have got produced if it hadn't already been a highly successful film and had a major rock star attached to it. You make a big point that two of the shows you talk about happened because of Elton John and Sting. Not to take anything away from them because they obviously could make whatever they wanted to make happen, happen. Yeah, I mean, The Last Ship is the demise of shipbuilding. But again, it's 30, 40 years after the event. I mean, I will say even in America, musical theater is not often critiquing the current moment, mostly because it takes so long to make a musical happen, especially more and more. It's hard to be exactly identifying the moment that's happening, because if you try to do that, by the time your show gets on, you'll probably be out of date. But even in the golden age, things happened faster, and it was much more topical, I will say. And I mean that in a bigger sense than just the news of the day, but concerned with the current moment and the current thing. I mean, of course, and there is the argument that does musical theatre have to have a political voice? My argument is in the UK that the 
sheer numbers of people who are now engaging with musical theatre means that it is a very potent tool for a political voice, however well disguised that voice is. So my argument, for example, when I talk about the lack of a female voice, the number of people who are seeing it, that's worrying. I mean, it's very white and male. So there is a whole section of society that is buying a ticket to see something that is absolutely replicating that. They're watching it going, well, where am I? Where's my voice? And musical theatre has the potential to reach so many people now that it's worrying that those trends are continuing in the UK musical, not in American, but in the UK musical. I would also contend that all theater is political. It's just Mm. sometimes it's reinforcing the status quo as opposed to critiquing it. The musicals of Andrew Lloyd Webber, the big mega musicals are in some way political as well, but not on the surface. The the big mega musicals, I mean, I talk about in the book, came out of Thatcherism and a belief that theater is a business and should be making money. It should not be subsidized. So it was absolutely reflecting a political viewpoint just in a different way. It was the greatest good culture. And as you point out in your book, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice and Cameron McIntosh, I don't think start off to dominate the British musical theater system. They start off to make stories that they care about and Mm. things that they're interested in doing and become wildly successful. That creates a conundrum for them. For anyone who becomes wildly successful, how do you maintain that success? What do you do to top the shows you've done before? And how to capitalize on it. Exactly. Continue to do all over the world. Not to feel sorry for any of them, but that's a challenge. There's a famous story about Rodgers and Hammerstein after Oklahoma, when it you know ran four times as long as any other show had ever run before. It was more successful than anything had been. Uh, they go to Louis B. Mayer, I think. They're talking to him about this problem. What do they do next? He called them up one day and said, Rogers, I know what you do next. And Rogers said, what? He said, shoot yourself. <laughs> and that was the idea that there was no topping what they had. There was no second act. And of course, they figured out a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. Yeah, I think I say in the the book that that need to replicate becomes just that. You're just replicating. You're not pushing the boundaries of the form. You're not experimenting with the form. It's this works, this makes money, let's do this. Let's do another one of these. And of course, Roger and Hammerstein got accused of that as well and I think struggled with that and did an amazing job, I think, of continuing to find ways to do it, but were often criticized for. Hmm. I think the interesting thing as well in in the UK theatre is the whole rep system. So the repertory theatre companies, which are subsidised by the government, there is a shortfall in funding. And what they have now discovered is that the musical will fill that shortfall. But attempts to create new musicals tend to be within the jukebox paradigm. It's a short, quick fix of making money. And again, understandable in terms of having run a big theatre company, people would always say, what's your biggest concern? What keeps you up at night? And it would be paying for everything. How are we going to afford to do what we need to do and want to do, which is just a reality of it. I was just going to say the irony of Les Miserables, everybody seems to have forgotten that it actually came from the Royal Shakespeare Company. Exactly. And the creators, one of the confusing things about this story you tell and why there's this disconnect between musical theatre and legitimate theatre, we'll call it, in England, when the practitioners of it, the creators of it, are largely the same people and often the same organisations and the same companies. Trevor Nunn could not be more well-respected as a theatre director and yet he's the most successful musical theater director of all time at the same time. 
Is he just seen as having sold out to make money and will ignore that? Utterly. <laughs> if you go back and look at the press at the time as to Trevor Nunn selling out and the fury, particularly from Michael Billington, the nation's leading arts critic, about the RSC engaging in musical theatre, particularly where they then did a production of Secret Garden and The National doing a classic series of Rodgers and Hammerstein, that there was this fury that these institutions were engaging in musical theatre. Now, I tried to work out what it was and I thought it it's not about the fact that these are American productions going on to a British stage because we're happy to put on Arthur Miller or Tennessee Williams. It's the fact that they're musicals. The National Theatre, the RSC, is not the place where musical theatre should be going. And that was a huge refrain in the 90s. I think that there's still a bit of eye rolling and, you know, Richard Eyre sold out because he did Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think there is a bit of that. It also brings up something that I think is very, very relevant in terms of the British musical is that American musical has practitioners who train specifically for musical theatre. They understand that musical theatre is a different beast to drama. And I think the reason why a number of, certainly in the last 10, 15 years, British musicals fail is when you look at the creative team, you'll say, but nobody knows anything about musical theatre. They're just assuming that you add songs and it'll be fine. I think that America has a very different understanding of what the form is and how difficult the form is to get right. Trevor Nunn, I think, was a one-off. Someone who was incredibly successful at both. John Littlewood, you would argue, in the 60s was the same. But I think they're few and far between. Just great theatre visionaries. And it's so interesting because we have that same kind of snobbishness here in America to some degree. There are still people, and especially in the academic world, musical theater can be very looked down upon as not being real theater, not being worthy of study or training or all those kinds of things. But I think also because America is so much more focused on economics in a way that if something is successful, then it's good. The value of musical theater from the beginning, because it was a sought-after commodity and not seen in a negative way, the way that that commodity aspect is seen in Britain. I talk about that right at the end of the book, about America's probably four or five decades ahead in terms of regarding musical theatre as a legitimate academic discipline. Um, you know, if you look at the papers that come out on musical theatre, the peer-reviewed papers, they tend to be coming from America. You get the occasional one from a British scholar because it's not studied as an academic discipline in the way that the papers that will flood out about Shakespeare or you know, David Hare. <laughs> That's so interesting because I've been interacting with so many of the British authors interested in musical theater these days, academics. So I get a probably a warped view of that because I see so many of you like yourself that are so engaged and mm. so smart and writing so beautifully about it. The mega musicals so dominated British musical theater. It struck me, and I think you make this point, it's actually a handful of shows. It's a very short list of shows that we think of as the British musical theater. Part of your argument is that they crowded everything else out pushed not only the other shows to the side, but other practitioners of shows as well. You would think that what would have happened over the last 30 years is this flourishment of British musical theater with all these other creators following in the wake of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice and Cameron McIntosh, but that didn't happen. It didn't happen. I think it's because Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber have so dominated the British 
musical. I mean, they're synonymous with the term British musical. If you say British musical, people think Andrew Lloyd Webber. They may think Matilda. But they became so powerful. And bear in mind, they own a lot of the theatres in the West End. So to a degree, they can control what goes in there. Cameron has engaged in partnerships with rep companies. The tentacles are very long. And also what happened was those big shows, the Les Mis, the Phantoms, started touring the UK. Now, that had never happened before. And they would sit in theatres and take them over for three months. The irony of it is, and and I, I believe this with the RSC and the National, as well, that all this money was coming out and no one ever thought of putting it back into what will we do when these people retire? Instead of putting it back into let's make this an industry that endures, it's no, we're doing our shows and that's it. The place that did that was John Littlewood's former theatre in the East End, Stratford East, in the 90s, no, early 2000s, I think, actually said, well, let's create an essence, a musical theatre lab where we use local voices, which were diverse ethnic voices, and create musical theatres that is this voice of Britain. But they were a tiny, tiny company with no funding. They were never funded for that initiative that was in partnership with NYU. Um, They never got funding for it. They produced a musical that went to the West End. But that's what the National and the RSC should be doing and aren't. There was a kind of stranglehold, I think I would argue there still is, which gave rise to the jukebox musical because the jukebox musical was the only product that could kind of get in there. But it was the same creative teams that were used over and over again. And there was no training or development. I don't think there was a a vision of a future beyond that very, very small circle. And we could argue, well, you know, they don't have to put money back into the industry, but it would have been a good thing if they had. It also would have filled up their theaters. They needed shows in their theaters. So you'd think another hit musical would be exactly what they were looking for. But it's another hit musical that they wrote. <laughs> yes, but they can't write them all. Maybe they thought they could. And I, I, mean, I argue that that's why British musical currently, I believe, and this is only my opinion, languishes behind Broadway in terms of development of the form and inclusion, because that... That development has never been there. And it's a little late now to say, where's all the British musicals? Well, you would have had them if the money had been reinvested 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. It's very puzzling. And you make a great case of that. Why haven't there been 15 more Matildas in the last 20 years? Because I I do think, having been a practitioner there, it is so hard to get in that I think, how many British Lin-Manuel Mirandas have we lost? Because you give up. It's so impossible to get something on. And I think that what happened, and I do argue this with the lack of the women's voice, is that because a handful of men became extremely rich, then there is a guarding of the doorways. The gates are are actually firmly shut. No one else is coming in. This is ours, metaphorically. Yes, (laughs) and maybe literally too. (laughs) One way of looking at the emergence of the jukebox musical, which I think is largely a British invention to a certain extent, Americans caught on quick, but that originates because of this vacuum. There aren't any writers, so smart theater people decide, well, we can make a show without writers. I think it was also a cheaper way of doing a show that could tour, could bring in an audience that wasn't being asked to pay the prices that Les Mis and Phantom were asking because they couldn't afford it. So they would come to theatre, but it wasn't going to cost them as much, which was off-putting because they're going, well, I I don't know what that is. I know what this is because I know the music. And I also believe that the British nation has this absolute obsession with nostalgia. I mean, the British nation is mired in nostalgia. And I think the jukebox musical came out of that. This desire to relive something. And the jukebox musical 
sort of opens that gateway to relive an experience that you had 20, 30 years ago. You know, we talk about the Dunkirk spirit that's everybody remembers the war as this certain thing. And you're going, it's almost 100 years ago. Why are we still clinging on to this and singing the songs? There is this need to look back in the UK that I, I don't know if that's there in America, but it makes perfect sense that the jukebox musical came out of the UK because of this obsession with nostalgia and everything was better before. I talk about that in terms of a little musical called Goodbye Mr. Chips that came out at a time of massive social unrest. It was in the 80s, which was, you know, the Falklands War. There was race riots were going on. There was Northern Ireland. There was peace movement. And we have this musical of Goodbye Mr. Chips, which is so quintessentially white, upper middle class England, and it sold out. People want to see that. And again, epitomizes your discussion of the difference between English and British to a certain extent. This is an English musical about the history of England. Yeah, it has very little to do with any of the other nations. I think I, I think I talk about that in Mrs. Henderson Presents, which is set during the war and was playing at a time when the Brexit discussion was happening. It sort of became about, should we be in Europe? Well, we were fine without Europe. Look, here's the Dunkirk spirit. We were fine. And do you think that is just happenstance? Is that conscious in some way when Mrs. Henderson Presents appears? Of course, it's years in the planning, but it's appearing on stage in the West End at that moment that this is happening. Is that just the zeitgeist causing something to happen? Yeah, I think it's coincidental. And I think I talk about the other one was a Scottish musical based on the music of the Proclaimers, which were they big in America? I would walk. Not very. I would walk 500 miles, but it it was a very. That song was big right at the beginning of MTV. Yes, that song. That's the Proclaimers. And the Proclaimers, the brand of the Proclaimers was Scottishness. When they came to Australia, they had subtitles. It was a sort of defiant, a defiant Scottishness. I'm not going to temper my accent. I'm going to talk. I'm not going to do it when I sing. So there was a musical built around their songs, which came out at the time when the Scotland was voting in an independence referendum. So it just so happened that happened at the same time, but it, it was a sort of defiant Scottishness, which is not English. So let's talk about Blood Brothers, because that's one of the centerpieces of your book. You have a whole chapter of around it and come back to it time and again. What do you see as the significance of Blood Brothers in terms of this subject matter? On the next episode of Broadway Nation, Grace Barnes and I will continue our conversation regarding her new book, National Identity and the British Musical, From Blood Brothers to Cinderella.
now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.